babies, and welcome to Poker in the Ears. I'm Uncle Daddy. I'm Joe Stapleton. He's my work wife, James Hardigan. Happy Argentinian Inventors Day, Joe. Did you manage to look up anything that an Argentinian had invented? No, I went as far as finding a day that was connected to the 29th of September and stopped there. Well, maybe someday an Argentinian will invent something. I hold out hope for that happening. Coming up on today's show, uh, well, today's the day I finally have to put my money where my mouth is and prove that I know Paul Schrader. Uh, he is a legendary filmmaker. He's the writer-director of The Card Counter, which I, and, and I have been dropping his name for the past two years now. He is on the show today, and we are going to talk, you guessed it, poker and movies. And I think it's fair to say that that interview with Paul will consume the majority of our running time today. Cool, yeah. I mean, when you got a legend on the line, why yeah. not use every second of it? This week's super fan, he'll get to talk to these two legends, Marius Vitas, uh, and uh, he is going to challenge me to trivia on a Paul Schrader movie called Mishima. I, are you sure it's not Mishinima? I know for a fact with 100% certainty that the name of the film is Mishima. A life in four chapters. Do not troll this movie, Joe. You know it's very close to my heart. I will ask you what you thought of it in front of Paul Schrader so that you can't <laughs> slag it off. Um, you were somewhere else. Where was it you were last week? I went to uh, a Run Good Poker tour stop in Sacramento last week. Um, and I've got a few anecdotes from there. Not as happy as anecdotes as I was hoping, but uh, a little bit more on that later. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, talking of anecdotes, um, really great feedback on Discord to last week's podcast. I I'm talking specifically about the bit where we talked about what happened behind the scenes on the WCOOP streams, because I genuinely didn't know whether people would find it interesting or boring, and I'm pleased to say that 100% of feedback was interesting. I just want to name-check a few of the people who gave it the thumbs up and said kind words. Shumif1, Jamie, Bob, Kai, Lee... Um, Based on that, expect more stuff like that in future episodes. In fact, got a plan for next week, which we'll come to later. I um, also cool. should say that both Sharon and John Delano really enjoyed our interview with Ben CB. I love the fact that John says he thinks he's a better poker player than he was <laughs> after listening to that interview with Mr. Roller. And I think you highlighted that as well, Joe. You said it made you want to actually get better at the game. It's just that enthusiasm and that real focus are just it, it, it's infectious the enthusiasm the focus and i i know this sounds weird but like the lack of hopelessness like a lot of times when i hear about the work that goes into becoming a better poker player and um how complicated it is and how time consuming it is and ben sort of made it seem less complicated and less hopeless and less futile uh, to try to get better at poker. So it kind of made me like hopeful that there's a little bit uh, fun too to be had uh, rather than just the crazy amount of work that people put in. Yeah. And obviously, look, we love feedback on the show, but we want the conversation to go beyond that. And would remind you, it's so easy to join the PokerStars Discord server. Link in the podcast description. Um, you can join in on any of the channels talk about the show, around the show, tell us who slash what you want to hear on this show, apply to be a super fan. And yeah, any of the stuff that comes up in conversation, any opinions you have, thank you to whoever it was who pointed out that um, that show, Why the Last Man, is on Disney Plus in the UK, so I can start oh, cool. watching it. So yeah, anything like that, really helpful, really useful. Thank you. Uh, all right, so... To on to Sacramento, I yeah. planned on, I was like, look, I'm going to go to Sacramento and I'm going to come back with some content, right? Some hands to talk about, so at least some some poker anecdotes. And I will just say that, and I'm not saying, I'm just reporting the facts here. This was the biggest losing week of my life. Uh, I don't remember winning a single handed showdown. I only played two tournaments. It was a rel relatively light schedule. There was sort of a warm up event and then the main event. Um, I don't remember winning a single hand at poker. I don't remember. And I'm not just talking about poker, by the way. Like, when you go on these events and people haven't been out and doing things, like, I kind of get sucked in the table games as part of the social scene, right? Everyone's like, oh, let's go play Pie Gal. Let's go play Ultimate Texas Hold'em. I did not win a single hand of anything wow. the entire time I was there. Pie Gal, Ultimate Texas Hold'em, uh, three-card poker, 
it was to the point where like people were giving me money and being like, hey, just stay and hang out. Just stay and hang out. I'm like, look, I'm trying to do the responsible thing here. I had a budget to be on this trip. And and so, you know, I was like, look, I'll sit here and play with your money if you want. But like, I'm I'm done. And it kind of all just sort of put me in a very weird mood. Um, you know, as we know, I haven't really had a lot of luck at, at various games recently. Anyway, the good thing was that I did manage to book a comedy show while I was there. I was like, oh, let me just like look up the clubs that are in town and just say, hey, if you guys throw me a spot, poker's in town and I can probably bring an extra 10, 15 people. Right. And uh, it turned out that a guy headlining the punchline in Sacramento, which is like their big comedy club, uh, I knew him. I knew him from L.A. And I said, hey, man, uh, just like I just mentioned here. And he goes, yes, absolutely. No problem. I'll throw you on. And uh, true to form, Ben Irwin and jo uh, Jordan, the guys that run the sort of poker it at, at Thunder Valley, uh, got people to come out. Did, oh, everyone, cool. The tournament ended at 8. I got the, the show started at 8, but I got the headliner to put me on at 9 right before him. 15, 20 people did come out. It was a great night. It was really fun. And uh, Ben, who runs the poker room in Sacramento, was like, yo, dude, I want to give you your own show at Thunder Valley. I want to let's let's talk about it. So I, I need to work something out, hopefully, with Poker Stars. Hopefully, we don't have any events going on during Are this we particular date. Talking about a residency. Not are a residency, no. Are, are you basically no. going to come the Wayne Newton of Sacramento? That would be awesome. I would I would like to have a thing somewhere, but no, it's going to be a one-off show in uh, in Thunder Valley and not in, and I I never like to oversell myself. Not a uh theater show. They're going to give me the bar for the night, but uh you know, there's going to be a, a run good event in town, so and at this point if all they have to do is walk from the poker room yeah. down the hall, we could have a couple hundred people in there and it's going to be sort of their player party. So I'm very excited about that. Don't don't want to announce the date just yet because we have to make sure everybody's schedules align. So that was cool. That was something good to bring out of it. But um, the next the next day, everything returned. It was just really feeling not great about gambling, not feeling great about poker, not feeling great about the amount of alcohol I was consuming during all this. So I left early. I, I decided that that things weren't going well for me. I wanted to stop. I, I felt like it was kind of being somewhat detrimental to my mental health and yep. to my to my bankroll. And so rather than stay uh, through the weekend, I left on Saturday and I just kind of felt like it was a good exercise in just being responsible and not Absolutely. necessarily riding things out to the end. Now, I will say this. I was in a funky mood driving home. And for some reason, I know this guy wasn't that big. Um, it's It was about a seven-hour drive. And I know this guy wasn't that big in, in the UK and Europe, but maybe some people can relate to this. Chris, I listened to the Chris Farley biography. Uh, Chris Farley was a comedian who was very overweight, was a big time into drugs and alcohol, and uh, was a, a, a guy I sort of idolized as a kid, not knowing you know, what, what his demons were. And there's a biography about him told by his friends and family and coworkers. And I had been listening to this on the trip. And one of the people that is constantly quoted is Norm. And I did not speak about Norm's death on our podcast. I spoke about it a little bit on our live broadcast because I was more or less forced to. Um, and I, I've been struggling with Norm's death quite a bit, actually, as the days have gone on. We had a very complicated relationship. I'm not really sure what to say publicly about it because I don't want it to seem like I'm attention-seeking, but I have a lot of things on my mind about him. I'm not really sure where to sort of release these words and these emotions, but it was very strange listening to this story about Chris's death told by Norm, who had also recently died far too soon. And so I I could realize I was getting so emotional on the drive home that after the week I had just had, it, they're comedians, so it like really hits home for me. They, we have some similar sort of tendencies uh, as far as comedy or going too far for a joke, yada, yada. And then I – so I turned it off before he dies. There was like a half hour left, and I was like, I think I'm going to be a wreck – I'm driving my car right now. I don't want to listen to the rest of this. And as soon as I turned it off, the radio is on, and it's Howard Stern talking about Norm, 
Oh, wow. Who is talking about Sam Simon, who, as you remember, was another guy I knew and was becoming sort of close with who also died uh, of, of cancer in his 50s. And the whole thing was like incredibly, it was a very incredibly taxing, trying week and weekend for me. Wow. So right now I'm just trying to to reset. Like I got back sure. from Sacramento late Saturday night. I couldn't sleep. I think I laid awake till about five o'clock in the morning. It was very, very strange. I know this isn't the sort of anecdote I usually tell on this show. And I guess the reason I'm doing it is to say like, I don't always let myself have feelings. I don't always let myself experience things. And I just wanted to to sort of say that sometimes it's okay to let it all hit you. Absolutely. Uh, and, and just and when my girlfriend got home on Saturday night, I said, look, I'm kind of a wreck right now. I just need you to be patient with me. I think the biggest takeaway from this as well, Joe, is the fact that, look, if nothing's going your way on this poker trip, you have this ideal in your mind, right? I'm going away to play poker. I'm going to play all these tournaments. I'm going to play some table games, going to have a laugh, have some drinks. If you are just consistently losing, if you are just drinking too much and you reach that point where it's like, this is not doing me any good whatsoever, having that common sense kick in, having that epiphany yeah. that it's time to go home. I think that's the biggest takeaway from this is that you did the right thing. And it's just unfortunate that the journey home ended up being so emotional. But you're not wrong. The We re- briefly referenced Norm MacDonald on the WCOOP live streams, more in the context of him as a poker commentator than a comedian and his work on high stakes poker about 10 years ago. Um, and Chris Farley, I think you brought up on the Sunday Million stream on Monday night, the uh, the long half-price edition of the Sunday Million that we broadcast yeah. this week. I think you mentioned, because we were talking about Shrek and the fact that Chris Farley was the original voice of Shrek. And, of course, on those streams every Monday night, as well as covering the poker, we do end up talking about a lot of movies. And I, another film I remember you bringing up in conversation was Howard the Duck. Yeah. And the fact <laughs> that you had a huge crush, crush on Leah Thompson. And that reminded me my kind of mid to late 80s movie crush was Ellen Barkin. So inspired by that conversation we had on the stream, I decided to revisit a couple of Ellen Barkin movies from the mid to late 80s. And I think a lot of people now will only think of Ellen Barkin from Ocean's 13, where like she's 20 or 30 years older. But um, The Big Easy, the one dude. In- Dude, The Big Easy is like one of the only movies of that era that I saw as a kid because my parents, I think, forgot we had a VH. They had recorded it off HBO or something. Yeah. And I remember there's a sex scene. There's one or two sex scenes in The Big Easy where I, I like, I'm not going to lie. I won't get into much detail. I rewatched those sex scenes regularly as a young man. And it's one of those films which I'm thinking. I watched it as a teenager. Is it going to be one of those 80s movies, which I now think is shit? And no, it's got flaws, but it actually holds up pretty well. Dennis Quaid is charming. Ellen Barkin is awesome. Ned Beatty is great, as he always is. John Goodman, um, really strong movie. And even better than that was when I revisited Sea of Love, which is the Al Pacino cop thriller, the kind of whodunit thriller from 1989. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I don't know if I have or not. I don't think so. I don't think I've seen that one. Well, check it out. I very much enjoyed revisiting those two movies. And based on the fact that Michael Rooker is in Sea of Love, I was thinking, <laughs> I've just watched Oliver Stone's Nixon. And he always refers to Nixon as being his godfather too, with JFK being his godfather one. Michael Rooker's in JFK. So the stars have aligned and I'm going to rewatch JFK, which is a movie I have seen countless times. And whatever you think about the theory it posits, ultimately you cannot deny it is a superb piece of filmmaking and a really engaging roller coaster ride of more than three hours. Michael Rooker plays JFK. That's amazing. How did no, I no, never no, 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 know no. that? He's, he's, until... he's in the film. Oh, I don't think anyone plays JFK because spoiler alert, he's dead at Wait, the start what? of the film. <laughs> uh, that's I didn't. I honestly didn't know no one played JFK in the movie. I thought I just hadn't seen it, so I didn't know. <laughs> I do recommend that you watch that one as well. Look, 
we're going to continue talking about cinema now, folks, because we're going to introduce this week's guest, uh, who I like to refer to as Joy, Joe's recent employer. Um, he is a filmmaker who was part of the generation that literally transformed Hollywood in the 1970s. And a quick shout out to Peter Biskin's book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Read it if you haven't. Um, this guy wrote these screenplays for Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ. He directed American Gigolo, Mishima, First Reformed. His latest movie, The Card Counter, has been mentioned many times, many, many times on this podcast. <laughs> And now it is finally time for us to talk to writer, director, Paul Schrader. We are thrilled to have Paul Schrader with us on the podcast. And Paul, I'm going to start with a hashtag fun fact. 25 years ago, I wrote my university dissertation about the neo-noir aesthetic. And I can't remember what the context was, but I know you are quoted in my dissertation of film <laughs> studies. So I think you have the honor of being the first person to appear on this podcast who was also quoted in my university dissertation. So that's a first. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. And obviously we want to start with The Card Counter with your most recent film that involved the talents of Mr. Joe Stapleton. And I guess a good starting point is to talk about the inspiration for the movie. What was the starting point? How was this idea born? So, Card Counter. Um, as anyone who has seen the film realizes that the business of playing cards, whether it be blackjack or poker, is um, metaphorical. In my case, just like driving a taxi cab or delivering drugs or being a minister. I'm looking for something underneath the occupation, which is not readily perceptible to most people. Most people in 1976, when they thought of a taxi driver, did not think of the black heart of existentialism, but they thought of a friendly kind of girl as, you know, best pal of the, of the lead. And uh, so that when you can go into a metaphor and find another slant on it, then it wakes it up. And then, and of course, it uh, upsets some people who are hoping to see a remake of, uh, what was that film called? The one about the students? Um, oh, they're looking for a remake of tw 21. Yeah, 21, yeah, one with yeah, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. yeah. And um, in fact, you know, um, all the reviews, uh, a good majority of the reviews have been favorable, quite favorable. But the first one that came in that was wall to wall negative was someone alerted me to it. And I, I didn't recognize the name of the writer. So I Googled him and it, Turned out that he also worked for the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> so, in his uh, in his dual occupation as protector of all that is Vegas and all that is uh, uh, poker, he had to weigh in and say how much of the film was unrepresentative of uh, of reality of uh, uh, card gambling. And, uh, and as we know from all their commercials that everybody in the casino is always laughing and drinking. It's, it's a very fun place on the, in the ads. And then you walk in and you say, well, where's that place I saw in the ads? <laughs> Paul, I, when I ran into you in Telluride and you came up to me and I was like, congrats on all the good reviews. And you're like, yeah, there's one bad one. It's a guy from Vegas. And you looked like right at me. And I was like, ah, is this my fault? Is this something that was wrong but with the poker? I would say to that, my pushback is that the film is not taking place in Vegas. It's not showing casinos in Vegas. And not to speak ill of some of the locations that are used in this movie or where these poker tournaments and card games are meant to be taking place, but I don't imagine these casinos have that atmosphere and probably are a little bit more downbeat. <laughs> Dare I say drab? Well, I mean, you know, we filmed this on what is called the Redneck Riviera, which is the strip of the Gulf Coast there running from uh, Gulfport to Pensacola. And um, 
And I suppose the, the Redneck Riviera does have its own ambiance. Yeah. As do the Indian casinos. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, it has a very different atmosphere and vibe. Yeah, but truth be told, um, you know, as Joe is well aware, the, the budget of the film was quite tight. And to go to Vegas and replicate what people know very well from television is an expensive proposition. And so we just kept it at the uh, YSOP local level and never took it to the national showdown. But in a way, I actually think that that worked to the story's advantage because this felt like the right world for this character to inhabit. He shouldn't be playing in the big glitzy televised games. He should be playing these kind of like mid-stakes buy-in, smaller events that, that, that so many of the circuit grinders play. It felt appropriate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, as Joe may remember, uh, a number of our extras were part of this, as you say, circuit grinders. Yeah. Uh, they sort of knew each other and they had uh, played before. And this was, um, uh, you know, a kind of, what's the word for it? Avocation, a pastime, a hobby, or a drug. It's one of those four that they were taking. I guess you've already raised the comparison yourself, Paul, which is the illusion that many people have made in analyzing this film between Taxi Driver and Card Counter with characters like Travis Bickle and William Tell haunted by their respective demons from the wars that they fought. And as you said, the taxi is a metaphor in Taxi Driver. William finds solace at the card table. I guess that's the biggest question, though. Why cards? Why blackjack? Why poker? Why gambling? What attracted you to that particular world? Because it's just numbers. You know, the person who sits in front of a slot machine for eight to 10 hours a day is not that different from the person who sits at a card table. Obviously, the person at a card table is much more proactive. With slots today, you don't even have to pull the lever anymore. Yeah. And you don't even have to collect your coins anymore. Yeah. So you just sit there and watch this these, these colors flash by. Um, Whereas with blackjack and poker, you actually have to play. But when it comes down to it, it's still a number system. And if you're really playing by the numbers, uh, like a top poker player, every so often there'll come a moment where your intuition and your skill come to play. But mostly it's your number crunching ability that's coming to play. You know, you're going through the odds. His percentage of getting what he wants is such, I suspect. My percentage is such. Uh, do I stay or do I go? And um, and uh, so that, that aspect of it, the sort of numbness, the re repetition, the hour after hour sort of sedation is what drew me to... Uh, I was saying, you know, what kind of pe person enjoys this sort of level of sedation? You know, they're not getting paid for it. Uh, I used to go to the uh, the club rooms down in Gardena, and it was always the same crowd. And, you know, they would just spend hour after hour there, and it was a kind of warm sort of passing of the time. Uh and uh, occasionally somebody would make money, but you didn't really feel that it was, uh, they were all there to go home rich. They're all there to be there. And so uh, that's what sort of intrigued me. And I started to think, you know, what kind of person would want to live in limbo? You know, a person who doesn't really, hasn't committed to living yet and hasn't committed to dying yet and is looking for a way to sort of exist in between. And uh, and so that's why I started coming up with this idea of a man who has so much guilt beyond which society demands of him. He's paid his debt to society, but he hasn't paid his debt to himself. 
So he's just waiting. And uh, he's waiting around to see whether this is going to be life or death. And it's like the minister in First Reformed, the first thing he writes is, I've decided to keep a journal for a year. Well, what's going to happen to him after a year? Well, he's going to have to make a decision whether he wants to live or die. Um, and it's the same thing with this character. Uh, he's spending this time in these wrapped rooms waiting for something to happen that will give his life a direction. And uh, in this case, it's a, a young man who walks up to him and gives him a sense of direction, a sense that if I can turn this kid around, maybe I can forgive myself. I, I feel like that's kind of like the relationship that me and Paul had on this film. <laughs> Paul saw me and was like, I can turn this kid's life around. Well, I'm actually interested in the influence you may have had on Paul, Joe, because Paul, you obviously knew the game of poker. You clearly had an idea of what the gambling world was like. Did Joe change your perception of the game in some of the games that you played in? Do you have a different outlook on poker now? Uh well, I mean, there's a way there was a, a story. Joe set up a poker club uh, to, in the quarantine called Club Quarantine, which yes. then threw me, threw me out. <laughs> and um, what I learned from that experience was that Zoom poker is not at all like your Felix and Alex poker in the basement. You know, when you play poker with your pals in the basement, you all sort of know each other and you know your boundaries. And you can try, you can trade insults and dirty jokes and you know what the boundaries are because people will give you a look and you say, you're going a little too far there. Well, you could, it's a little hard on Zoom to know when you've gone too far. And there was a, a very attractive girl in the group I had never met, obviously. And, and uh, I asked her, because it's a social group, it's not just cards. And I asked her, you know, you have a boyfriend? And she said, yes. I said, is he good looking enough to deserve you? <laughs> and, um, and she said, yes. I said, well, do you have a picture of him? And she said, yes. I said, why don't you hold the picture up to the camera and everyone will decide if he's good looking enough <laughs> to deserve oh, wow. you. <laughs> And uh, and then then I was told that I was no longer welcome. <laughs> and just to be so, clear, this is the first time you'd been in this group of people. And the, not the did... first time. No. So okay. I wasn't there this particular day. And I, you know how Paul just said, like, oh, sometimes when you're in the basement, people, someone will shoot you a look. I was the guy that would sometimes shoot Paul the look, and I'd be like, Paul, this story, <laughs> this story, Paul needs to maybe rein in a certain aspect, <laughs> and like, because I was the only one that would ever tell Paul to rein it in and I wasn't there on this day and nobody told Paul to rein it in till it had gone too far. So okay. uh, I feel guilty that I wasn't there to, to prevent this from happening because Paul could maybe still be in our poker game today. Although um, my biggest problem with Paul in the poker game is that Paul at a certain point just decides he's done and doesn't want to play anymore and it's a tournament. So he just starts moving all in until someone finally ends up with his chips, okay. which can kind of sometimes upset the balance of the game also. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people get kind of freaked out because they know I'm going all in because I want to get back to the football game. <laughs> but they also know that there's a chance I'm going to win. <laughs> exactly. And that it doesn't matter to me, but it does matter to them. We have been we have been palled a couple of times uh, in in our home games. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail about the movie simply because Paul, we've still got a lot of people listening to this podcast who live on this side of the Atlantic. The film hasn't opened yet. I'm, I'm one of the few people in the UK to have seen it, but there is one thing I wanted to talk to you about. So, spoiler alert. For anyone who hasn't seen The Card Counter, I just want to talk briefly about the character of Mr. USA, because initially, and this is where I'm looking at it as a poker nerd, I did have an issue with this character. It's like, it's unrealistic that this person would win everything uh, over a, a short period of time. But then I realized, no, James, in the context of this story, this guy needs to exist. He's the false idol. He is that paradox of patriotic pride for the country. I'm assuming that's what he's meant to represent, right? The well, he's, that... he's first and foremost a red herring. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't have done him quite so broad 
if he was in fact E.G. Robinson. Uh, but you know, the thing about genres, we even if you're smart enough to look at this movie and say, Schrader doesn't give a fuck about Mr. USA, he's pulling my chain. You're still not smart enough to avoid the temptation of wanting to see the showdown. Even though you think there probably won't be one because he wouldn't be portraying this character so broadly if, in fact, it was going to be a realistic showdown. Uh, but still, you get suckered by the genre because you know that that's how these movies end. They end with, with E.G. and Steve putting the money on the table. And uh, so that is a uh, definitely a red herring. Uh, and uh, I'm surprised how well it worked and that a lot of reviewers viewed it as a comment on political situation when it was just something I sort of came up with to make the viewers think we were going to go another direction. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and then all this, you know, this whole USA thing, you know, as, as Springsteen found out when he had to stop singing born in the USA was that it was becoming a right wing chant and people in his auditorium were going USA, USA, USA. And then if you listen to the song, it's the opposite. Yeah, uh, uh, nativist uh, propaganda, and then Bruce just stopped singing it. Now he started singing it again in the Broadway show, but now his new version is so melancholy and so sad. Uh, but uh, you get trapped uh, by those reactions, and and so that's what I was exploiting. No, that makes sense. I was probably one of the people who basically swallowed the red herring hook line <laughs> and, and sinker. I definitely thought there was some political comment going on there. Yeah, and there's, a, there's another red herring going on, which is, oh, we're just going to tell you about poker. And, you know, if you listen, you, you'll learn how to count cards and you'll learn which games are the most popular and which games, you know, all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you're in Abu Ghraib and the same tone of voice is saying, well, then we did that. And then we yeah. did that. <laughs> and, uh, and so you're, you're fooled by the factual documentary nature of the of the voiceover into thinking all these things are equal. Uh, you know, we tortured some people, and then and then then I had uh, three of a kind. <laughs> That's a very hard segue for sure. Um, Joe's already mentioned that I'm a huge fan of your work. In fact, in honor of you today, I'm wearing my uh, Palantine campaign T-shirt just for you. Um, One of the things that obviously I think runs through your work, Paul, is you obviously value the importance of music. And if I think back to some of your movies of the 80s, if I think of films like Cat People and American Gigolo, the work that Giorgio Moroder did for those films, the opening of the, the Blondie track, Call Me, is just so iconic and represents that part of the decade. But the standout for me, and it is probably one of, if not my favorite of your films, and Joe mentioned that you very kindly signed my Blu-ray copy of it, it's Philip Glass's score for Mishima. And the fact that that is a score which has since been used in so many other movies, TV shows. I think it appears in the Truman Show, to name just 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 one. But it is, it's not playing on your local elevator. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it on elevators. Oh, really? Wow. wow. Um, for and, me, and I, I can tell you why. Because in order to induce Phil Glass to do this at a lower price, we returned the music rights to him. I see. So that every time it plays in an elevator, Phil gets paid. We don't. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I would say the deal was worth it because I think it just elevates everything in what is already a fantastic film. I do want to, I guess, apologize. I first saw that movie at the end of the 80s. I had a VHS copy of it. So the version that I fell in love with was the version which had Roy Scheider's voiceover. And I actually love Scheider's VO. Then, of course, when the movie comes out on disc all these years later, I learned that 
that was never your intention. It was kind of like a, a gimme to the studio who felt that there was too much Japanese dialogue it, in the movie. It wasn't a gimme to the studio. It was my insecurity that if I went out with this film with all of that material you had to read uh, from the um, from the dialogue and then added material you have to read from the narration, it would be too much. Yeah. And uh, and some foreign films have done that in the past, which is redone the narration in the native language and kept the dialogue in the yes. original. And so I said, you know, uh, I'll do that because I don't want people to get scared off there's too much reading. And then by the time we reissued it with Criterion, people were used to the film, and, and then I never heard. I don't know if I ever would have heard that comment originally, but I was afraid of hearing it. So yeah, it's so funny you say that, Paul, because whenever we talk about foreign movies on this podcast, I call them readies. I'm I like, was no, thinking, no, Paul was pandering to people like you, Joe. That, you're exactly <laughs> who he was thinking of when he made that decision. Well, I mean, I have to confess, when I watch the movie on Blu-ray, I still watch it with the Shida VO, and it doesn't bother me at all that it's the voice of an American actor. I think his his performance is 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 fantastic. Uh, Joe, you watched Mishima for the first time. I watched it last night, actually, for the first time. What? I. I couldn't help. Okay, so it makes sense that I may have heard the music elsewhere because not only did I think that the music sounded familiar, but I thought that the camera moves combined with the music, it really, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Paul, it really reminded me of the show called Mr. Robot. And if. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Did, did it remind you of your own movie when you watched it? Well, Mr. Robot is recomposed in post. It's very interesting. Because now if you shoot with uh, 6K, you can shoot a frame and then in post, pan, oh. pan around it. This is what they do on Mr. Robot. Uh, what happened with the score on Mishmo, uh, I wanted something to unify all of this. And so I, I said to Philip, I'm going to make a lot of boats. You got to make this, the river. And I'm going <laughs> to keep dropping these boats in. Different stories, different characters. You unify them with the with the water, and so that was his task. And he had done uh, biographical operas before. He had done Gandhi. He had done Einstein. And uh, so I said, you know, approach it like that. And so he did a lot of research, and he wrote the score. It was about an hour long, without seeing a foot of film. Wow. Uh, he just wrote it as he would an opera. I uh, wrote it from the script. And uh, so then he gave that to me, which he had just played on a synth. And I took that and I cut it. I cut it to the film, not the film to it. So I cut sections out, replicated sections, intercut different sections. And I went back to him and I said, I've made a total mess of your score, but it now works for picture. So give a listen to it and let's decide what to do next. And he listened to it and he said, okay. And so he rewrote it. Now that he knew all of the score points, all the points that, that what do we call the click points that have to be hit. And, and then we uh, scored it not on sense, but with the with the full orchestra, um, and so it was that. That's how it was done. It was sort of done twice. Wow. Uh, one. I just had a, one other question about Mishima. I, I see it was made by Lucasfilm. Does that? Uh, it's one of the production companies involved. Is it official Star Wars canon then? <laughs> no. What What happened was the producer of the film. Uh, Tom Luddy, who's an old friend of mine, who started the Telluride Film Festival. And he was uh, part of Francis's Zoetrope group. And so Zoetrope was going to do it. And Francis went to Tokyo with me and talked Madame Mishima into getting the rights. And we still, we weren't, we had gotten half the budget out of Japan, but we couldn't get the other half. And Francis said, let's bring George in, because I think George can pull this off. 
because you're talking about a film that's not going to make any money. And George was having a feud with Warner Brothers because of the way they had released THX. And he was saying bad things about Warner Brothers in the press. So he went in to Ted Ashley and uh, said, we would like you to put 50% of the budget in to match this. Uh, Francis and I, and Ted said to him quite simply, if we do this, George, will we be doing you a favor? Uh, and George said, yes, you will. And he said, okay, we'll do it. And George never said anything bad about Warner Brothers again. That's cool. <laughs> and um, so he's kind of proud of it. He sort of backed into it. Um, but that's uh, how it got made. And um, and there's another, another we're way off from uh, a car color, but there's a, one more fascinating story. So once we got this film going, the widow realized what creative rights actually meant, or what consultation rights meant, which right. meant nothing, nothing. I mean, we'll hear your opinion, but we don't have to do anything about it. And so she wanted to stop the film now, yeah, after signing it off. And, uh, and so she called up her friends in the right way which in Japan is really the main building. And, uh, and uh, we started to get uh, threats. Uh, and uh, then the, our Japanese, we had a, a small anime company, and then Toho and Toa had come in in Japan. And Toho and Toa came to the head of the anime company who had started this all and said, we are not going to be able to honor our agreement. Now, in Japan, you don't really put things in writing. You, you honor an agreement. And they said they would put in half the money. And, on, and so Mata, who was my friend and head of the anime company, said, um, you gave me your word. Based on this, I brought in orders and... and uh, and, uh, overseas, I have uh, spent $1 million of my own money, which is about all my company is worth. Now, if you pull out, Waters in Columbia, Waters pulls out, um, and I lose my million dollars, and I will then do what I need to do to protect my children, and which is Japanese code language for uh, then, I don't know if it's still true now, that if a man runs up debts and kills himself, those debts are not passed on to his children. Oh. And so what he was saying to the representative was saying, what they heard when he said this wasn't, oh, poor Mata's going to kill himself. It was, we will never work again. We gave this man our word. We went back on it. He killed himself. Wow. No one will have anything to do with us again. We might as well kill ourselves. And so about two weeks later, they met in a restaurant in Kamakura and they handed him a suitcase with, a, with two and a half million dollars in yen. And to this day, they claim not to have given it. <laughs> wow. And wow. it was at Khan, and there was a party at Toho for another one of their products. And I went to Kamakura, uh, 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 not Kamakura, Kentawawa, and uh, I said, you know, uh, I want to thank you for helping Mishima get made. And he looked me right in the eye and said, we had nothing to do with that film. <laughs> and it's still never been released in Japan. No. Because the quid pro quo was they would not, because... Mata had sent his family off out of the country. Uh, I had security detail. I was wearing a, wow. a vest, uh, you know, because the attack, if it came, would be by knife. And after about a week, someone came to me and said, you can take off the vest. They're not going to shut us down. And what I learned years later was a deal was made that the right wing 
would not attack the production, which would obviously result in very bad headlines, if Toho would guarantee that it would never be shown in Japan. Right. And and they still honor that guarantee, even though they didn't finance the movie, even though they have nothing to do with it. The one place it wouldn't have been a reedy is the one place you couldn't show it. I mean, you're dealing with someone who is a very controversial figure in Japan. I mean, this is the fascinating thing about making movies, Paul, about raising the money, getting them made. It's almost as fascinating as the story of the movie itself, which is why there's so many movies about the making of movies. But staying on the subject of troubled productions, and I guess you talk about George Lucas's relationship with Warner Brothers. How is your relationship with Warner Brothers after what happened with the Exorcist prequel? Oh, well, that wasn't Warner Brothers. That was uh, Morgan Creek. And um, so they hired me, not Warner Brothers. Okay. And, um, and, and they hired me because John Frankenheimer had died and he had been prepping the film. So I came in at the last second. And uh, it was a mistake. I was dealing with people who didn't respect me, who I didn't respect. And it was just a matter of time before uh, that hostility came out and they tried to recut the film and they couldn't recut it and they remade it. Um, And, uh, you know, um, it was just... uh, you know, I, I don't really blame them. It was, I'm, the, I'm the one who, you know, uh, agreed, you know, because all filmmakers are alpha personalities, male or female. And, you know, we can always do it. Give me that whip. Give me that chair. I'll go into that cage of lions and I'll have them all sitting up. Well, Sometimes the lions win. <laughs> sometimes you go into the cage and you're dinner. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, uh, but you, it doesn't stop you from going in the cage the next time. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it's one of those situations where eventually your version or at least as close to your version as it could be was later released in the same way that George Lucas's cut of American of, of THX finally saw the light of day on Blu-ray all those years later. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I'll tell you why that version was released. Um, what's his name? Who, uh, who wrote the book? Um, William Peter Blatty. Yeah. Blatty. He was insistent that my version come out and really insistent and um and we he was able to get them to put up a minimal amount of money to cobble together what was my version uh and so that and he was also insistent that it play theatrically and the first day it played theatrically under the name dominion i went down to washington dc where he lived and we went and saw it together and only later did I realize that his contract was written in such a way that he would got paid all over again. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so if, if the second version came out, it was just the same amount of money he got for the first version. Well, I know that Joe Stapleton is looking forward to the card counter special edition with added poker. So potentially he can get paid <laughs> all over again. Um, Paul, there's so much more I would love to talk to you about, but I know that we've used up all of our time. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Congratulations on the movie. I'm glad it's been so well received. And as I said, I can't wait for the rest of the world to be able to see it soon. Yeah, I'm on to uh, the next one. Uh, And he's not a poker player now. He's not a minister. He's not a drug dealer. He's a horticulturalist. And okay. I'm I'm gonna study up on uh, on botany <laughs> so I can be involved yeah. in this movie as well. So I can just yeah, run you're around and learn learn all your Latin phrases. Semper ubi sub ubi. <laughs> you guys can look that all one right. up. All right. Well, thank you all. Thank, thank you, Paul. Paul. Uh, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. It was great talking okay. to you. You know, you know, uh, Joe has a, a little token appearance in the film. I don't know if you noticed. Yes, I noticed that. You know, the first time you see Mr. America, Joe is uh, 
off to his uh, left side. Is that called the distaff side? Whatever it is. I have position on him. That's what we call it in poker. I am going to quote one of the reviews I saw on social media, which I agree with 100%. Joe Stapleton plays the part of a loser to perfection. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you very much for your time. A a lifetime of work has to be worth something. That's right. (laughs) All right, Joe. Nice seeing you. You too, James. Thanks, Paul. Well, we may be done with Paul Schrader, the man, but we're not done talking about Paul Schrader's movies. We just discussed Mishima there, and that is the subject of this week's Superfan Quiz. That means we need a superfan. Marius Vitas, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. You're welcome. I'm a little bit uh, worried. I I know this is a weird thing to say, but Marius looks smart. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, too kind, Joe. Too kind. Uh, Marius, before we go back to the movie let's talk about you tell us about yourself where are you in the world and what do you do yeah so i'm i'm originally from lithuania but i live in london i've been living here for a while now um i'm a lawyer by trade um so yeah don't trust me um and yeah and and play poker when i have time which i don't have at the moment that much but yeah whenever i have a few hours still playing I'm just going to say, Joe, that was a pretty solid read. We've got a lawyer, a poker-playing lawyer in our midst. I think we may have a smart superfan who is no doubt going to crush this game. Um, So busy with work. Is that the deal, Maris? Just no time for fun and games, that game being poker. Yeah, exactly. It's only mainly weekends, really, or if you have that odd Friday afternoon. What? What? What kind of lawyer are you? Are you the kind that um, like wears a wig, like a powdered wig kind of lawyer? Or, no, I'm uh, not a barrister. No, no, a solicitor. solicitor. A solicitor. Okay, so that's the one that is like just does more normal stuff. Yeah, kind of like when you if you don't work that hard, you basically have to say clients, you know, work hard, <laughs> play hard, I guess. Very nice. Um now, obviously, we will give you the chance to play some online poker for free, assuming that you can win this. And I did double the prize. I haven't forgotten about that Ooh. promise uh, because I set the superfan subject. I'm interested, Marius. Did you know of this movie before it was set as a superfan subject or have you watched it specifically for the purposes of this competition? Yeah, I watched it specifically for this one, actually. I must be honest. No, I haven't heard about it previously. And um, yeah, there's a bit funny story about about watching this film because... You know, me kind of leaving everything to the last minute. I thought, oh, it's going to be easy to get it, you know, online, everything. I'll just like rent it or stream it, you know. And actually, it was pretty hard to get it because I think one of the streaming platforms, I think it's only in US, so it's area restricted. Yeah. And then basically, I wanted to order by DVD and it wouldn't come in time. So I was a bit <laughs> panicking. So basically, I managed to get some like dodgy website. I paid rented copy. So I probably need to cancel my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the thing is, it was in Japanese. There was no subtitles on. So I was like, oh, gosh. But then I managed to get the script for the film from Reddit. So I hope that's the original one. Wow. So, yeah, so I kind of had to read it. Holy shit. Can you believe that we almost didn't get this story out of Marius? Like, I, I, I feel like I almost have a chance at this because I... Like, I always call foreign films foreign films. Uh, films in other languages... Uh, Readies, you literally had to read along with this movie from paper. Wow. Yeah, well, I kind of read it first and then I watched it, so it kind of makes sense. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, we'll oh, maybe you'll just kill me then. I'm glad you got the visual experience. And do you know what? Sometimes if I watch a film in a foreign language that I don't understand and have zero knowledge of, I get a very different experience. And because this is such a visual audio delight, in a way, I imagine you can take different stuff away from it if you're not sure what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and again, being completely honest, it's the first time I read the script, right, for a film. And it was kind of eye-opening, you know, because the way they describe the scene and every single detail. So then you watch the film kind of from different perspectives, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, um, yeah it's very interesting. So. Joe, you already said that you were slightly confused by the structure of the movie. Interestingly, Patrick also took a little bit of time to adjust to what was going on. I guess it's that strange mix of biopic where it's jumping between time zones, but also then weaving in kind of dramatic 
interpretations of the author's works as well. It is unique in that way. I appreciate it's not everyone's cup of tea. Some people might feel it's a little bit pretentious, but I absolutely love it. And I said, I just find it visually stunning. And the Philip Glass score is amazing. Anywho, 10 questions have been compiled by Patrick. Um, Obviously, I've been through them and I'm okay, I've seen the movie a ton of times, but I haven't seen it recently and I'm still pretty certain I could do okay in this quiz. So I think you guys are going to be fine uh, with your respective viewings in recent days. I will say, Marius, I love the effort you went to that's to make really sure you awful. did your homework. I hope you win, yeah. Well, guys, fantastic. I could have I disappointed you, you know? <laughs> Especially when I volunteered for that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you get to go first and you get to give okay. me a number between one and ten. Fine. Uh, number one, please. Number one. And remember, multiple choice options are available should you need them. The first question, what date does the film start in? So the present day scenes, what date are those scenes set on? Okay, I was, I think it's, can I ask um, a question to clarify real quick, maybe for Marius and for myself? Uh, what year or the actual date? The actual date, which it makes. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. I think it's November 25, 1970? Uh, Correct. Spot on. November the 25th, 1970 was the day that... Yeah. Let me just check I'm not... Well, you've seen the film. It's not a case of a spoiler. It's more a case of making sure that's not a question. Uh, let's just say it was the last day of Mishima's life. Two points to Marius and Joe. You're up. Uh, man, he went with one. That's interesting strategy. I'll bookend it. I'll go 10. Number 10. What is the name of the Japanese ritual suicide by cutting the abdomen? But this is what I nearly said just now when I was talking about Mishima uh, dying. So it. that's why I had to go back and check that it wasn't actually a question, and it is. Seppuku. Seppuku for two points. It's a tied game. Marius, your question. Number two, let's go in order. Okay, name the actor who plays Yukio Mishima. Can I have options, please? You can. Is it Kenji Sawada, Toshiyuku Nagashima, Ken Ogata, or Yasusuke Bando? Apologies for some of the dodgy pronunciations there. Um, I should be okay with foreign names, given that I have one. Um, <laughs> I'll go option C. It is option C. Ken Ogata is the lead actor in Mishima. That gives you three points total. Joe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going the opposite end of the okay. spectrum. What color is Mishima's army uniform? I really struggle with colors to, like, to say the same color that other people say. Like, I'll be like, that's orange. And they'll be like, no, it's red. So I'm a little bit worried here. What? So I, it's like yellowy green. Would uh, you like the multiple choice options? I mean, it's really fucked up that I have to take the multiple choice options because everyone else sees the world in a stupid way as opposed to my correct way, but fine. I mean, again, I can only say this subjectively. I think it's a very distinct color. Is it white, brown, Black or green? Brown. It is brown for one point. Okay, it's a tight game. Three points each. Are we going with number three, Marius? Yeah, let's do that. Let's okay. What year was the film released? 1985. Correct for two points. Uh, Joe, I'd love to tell you that there's a gimme who directed it, but that would be probably pushing it a little <laughs> bit too far. Uh, question eight. Yeah, go ahead. Snowman's. How many times has Paul Schrader written a film that was directed by Martin Scorsese? What's the score right now? Uh, you're down by two. Uh, there is a bonus here. So if you take the multiple choice options and get the bonus question yeah. correct, you'll still be tied. Here's the problem. I have a number in my head. And if that number is in the choices, but is still wrong, then I've kind of taken the choices for no reason. Uh, I'm going to say the choices are diverse. It's not like <laughs> consecutive numbers. Okay, all right. I'll take the choices. Okay. One, four, nine, or 25? Four. 
Correct. Just out of interest, can you name all four? No, uh, I don't know. Well, I can name three. The number that was in my head was three. So I, okay. it's... The one people Raging forget. Bull, ta- what? Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Last Temptation of Christ. And the one everyone forgets is Bringing Out the Dead. But the bonus question is not related to naming okay. the films, or at least not naming all of them. It's tell me which of those movies has grossed the most. Ooh. Which was the most successful of the Schrader-Scorsese collaborations? God, I don't think any of them really made that much money. Um, Taxi Driver. Correct. So it's still a tied game. Five points all. Question four. Yep. Here we go. What is Mishima diagnosed with that prevents him from joining the military? Of course, he later reveals that he exaggerated his illness because he was a coward. But what does the doctor diagnose him with? Tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, correct, for two points. 7-5 the score. Always coming seven, Joe? Yeah, yeah, come on. Let's go. This is a gimme. Who composed the music for the film? Philip Glass. Two points. Okay, final round. Five or six? Let's go five. You're going to go five. (laughs) Name the first three chapters of the film. Crucially, not the names of the novels they're based around, but the first three chapters of the film. You can talk it out without it being your final answer if you need to. Don't worry about it. Yeah, okay. Um, So the first one is... Is that the sort of one word chapters, right? Correct. Not the names. Yeah, okay, okay. So the first one is beauty, second one is art, and third one is action. Correct, for two points. And there is a bonus. Name the final chapter. Ooh. The final chapter? You mean the. the li- oh, okay. There are four chapters yeah. to the movie. Uh, harmony, harmony. And, and sold. Correct for the bonus points. And Joe, Shit. question number six. Can you name the three Mishima novels that are featured in the film? I'm down by two, right? You are. I can't Actually, do you're down without, by three. You're down by three. I can't do without the choices anyway, so I can't I can't win, but I'll take the choices. Okay. Is it the Golden Pavilion, Freeing, and Escaped Mind? The Golden Pavilion, Kyoko's House and Runaway Horses. Blinded by Inferiority, Final Exits, and Escaped Mind, or Smoldered Attraction, Final Exits, and Runaway Horses. It's the one that starts with the Golden Pavilion and Kyoko's house. And Runaway Horses. So that's one point. Joe, you did pretty well, buddy, for you. Eight points is a respectable (laughs) score. But Marius, having seen the film in Japanese and read the screenplay as well, you have conquered this quiz with 10 points, 10-8 the final score. Congratulations. We will make sure you get not one, but two Sunday Million tickets, plus some PokerStars merch. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. And pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, man, it was nice having you. And and, um, thank you for going to such lengths to make this (laughs) competition uh, competitive. Yeah, well, Joe, you didn't make it easy. Um, I say that. Yes. Uh, Not just giving up your time today, Marius. Also giving up your time tracking down this movie. Thank you. No worries. Thanks a lot, guys. TK. All right, my babies. We're almost out of time for this week's show. Coming up next week. I guess most of the poker world is heading to Vegas for the for the World Series. So, guess we're gonna try to track someone down from there. Yeah, I mean, not being funny, we try and do this every single year, twenty twenty excluded for obvious reasons. And the problem is the time <laughs> difference combined with the playing schedule makes it so hard. But We've got a couple of ideas, so we'll see what happens next week. I did allude to the fact that we'll do some kind of behind-the-scenes stuff from live events. I'd like us to go back to an EPT from yesteryear. Joe, you and I recently were talking about the fact that Barcelona 2013, for some unknown reason, so much happened at that event, and so much of it happened behind the scenes. So I remember it all very clearly, so I'm going to tell the audience about it and remind you, because I'm pretty sure you will have forgotten a good 90 to 95 percent okay so what you're saying is 
you've got that covered. All I have to do is let you jog my memory while we're talking about it, and I don't have to come up with anything else. I am so tempted to, in the middle of it, just throw in a complete made-up story and see if you can spot. (laughs) spot the lie uh yes i would like your reaction and your own recollections because not being funny I'm, i know i mock but if there are certain things which once i say oh do you remember that of course you're going to be able to talk yeah. about it i guess we'll just have to keep our finger on the edit button because i'm never sure like what after the passage of time is okay to talk about and what isn't because uh, there's definitely stuff that is after yeah. the passage of time and ultimately there will be a couple of cases where we will talk about someone in the as, as a person without necessarily a name uh but anyway we'll get into that next week and also we should have time for a ruling yes i love to make a good ruling one thing that we should have brought up earlier but we didn't because we were packed with paul schrader today i just want to mention really quickly is that this week's sunday million was really really fun and really interesting and one of the more wacky batshit and i know it takes a while to go back and watch an entire live stream, especially because this one was long. But if you are the sort of person that does like to go back and watch, it is worth watching. It's one of the most fun ones we've done for a while. In fact, why don't you guys hop on the Discord if you watched it? Chat about it. Relive it. Uh, Get your super fan applications in. Get your rulings in. We're going to do more of those in the future. And, of course, we are very happy to run a mock Ask Me One Question Uh, at any point and we will throw it on the show Uh, that is all the time we have got for this week's show however for James Hardigan I am Joe Stapleton smell you later